And welcome to the Plant a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is being recorded on May 13th, 2022. Tom Kimmerer is a scientist, author, and photographer. He is a consulting forest scientist working with landowners and with other scientists and natural resource management professionals to ensure a future for the woodland pastures of Kentucky and Tennessee. He consults on sustainability issues related to forest management and wood utilization, Tom is the author of Venerable Trees, History, Biology, and Conservation in the Bluegrass, and writes for American Forests, Planet Experts, and other publications. He teaches field courses on forestry, woodland pastures, and sustainability, and is a conservation photographer specializing in tree and forest photography. Tom has a BS in forest biology from SUNY ESF and a PhD in both forestry and botany, with a specialization in tree physiology and biochemistry from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He has done research and has taught tree physiology, forest biology, and urban forestry in the United States, Indonesia, and Malaysia, and was a faculty member at the University of Kentucky. Tom was also senior Fulbright scholar in Malaysia and an advisor and consultant on environmental and forestry issues for the governments of Malaysia and Indonesia and the Electric Power Research Institute and LG&E Kentucky Utilities. Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast, Tom. We're delighted that you could be with us today. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. We have so many questions for you. (laughs) We might as well start at the very beginning. Um, We are curious uh, to find out the, the pathway that you took to get to your career as a scientist and forester. I don't think it would be a straight path, but maybe it is for you. I'm not sure anybody arrives in forestry by a straight path. <laughs> you know, I, I was when I was teaching at the University of Kentucky and when I was teaching in Southeast Asia, I would say 80% of the students had changed their major from something else. Because most people don't know what forestry is. You know, when you come right down to it, people equate forestry with logging, which it isn't. <laughs> but I, um, I was sort of torn between two career paths when I was in high school when I started college, one was to be a musician and the other was to be in medicine. And I worked at Johns Hopkins Hospital and played the violin and thought everything was all set. And one day I just realized how much I loved hiking. I grew up in a hiking family. I spent a lot of my time in the deep woods of Baltimore, which there actually are deep woods in Baltimore. And uh, so I took the summer off from work and, and went hiking all over the East Coast, uh, mostly in the Appalachians. 
And when I was done, I decided I did not want to work indoors for the rest of my life. So I went to Syracuse, and I was uh, convinced at that point that I was going to be a wildlife biologist. I'd been reading lots of books like David Nietzsche's Wolves of Isle Royale, lots of wildlife stuff. Well, I started as a sophomore, and two weeks into my sophomore year, I was taking dendrology, and I got hooked. <laughs> you know, I, I had no idea before that how interesting trees could be. Um, and it, it, it just, uh, I switched my major to botany, and it's been trees all the way ever since. <laughs> well, that, there's not that far of a difference from a violin to a tree. If you think about it, and you were were listening to the violin as you played, so maybe it was telling you, I was once a tree. (laughs) Yeah, that's absolutely true. But, you know, as soon as I started seriously studying trees, I I discovered many benefits to studying trees instead of wildlife. One is trees don't run away when you approach them. (laughs) Mark recapture experiments are very simple. So I, I did a, a double major in, in uh, botany and forestry at Syracuse. And then with my former wife, Robin, and I, we went off to Wisconsin, and I did a double degree there in forestry and botany, but the botany was actually plant physiology and biochemistry. It was Wisconsin. That's why I went to Wisconsin. It's one of the strongest plant physiology programs in the world. And so I did, uh, did my PhD there, and then packed up and moved to Lexington, take a tenure-track job at University of Kentucky. And, you know, I sort of thought that uh, I would do what a lot of young academics do, is go someplace reasonably good for a few years, get some grants, get established, write some papers, and go someplace else. Well, that was 41 years ago. I'm still here. <laughs> I just fell in love with Kentucky. Yeah, I was just about to use that phrase, Tom. It, it does feel like you fell in love with the bluegrass state. Mm-hmm. And then you wrote a book called Venerable Trees, yes. History, Biology, and Conservation in the Bluegrass. What was the inspiration for that? Well, while I was still on the faculty at UK, and my then wife was on the faculty at Setter College, just south of here, uh, we had a farm in Garrett County. So I was commuting every day about 30 miles. And I started to realize that I was passing enormous, huge trees every day, like hundreds of them. And my farm itself had a couple dozen trees that were just, you know, that were greater than 80 inches diameter. And so I left the University of Kentucky to go into consulting. And uh, after I'd done that for a while, um, I realized that there was something going on with these trees that we didn't understand. E. Lucy Brown, the famous forest ecologist, said that the, the vegetation of the bluegrass was the most anomalous ecosystem in North America. She didn't understand it either. So I took several years and thoroughly studied these trees and where they, why they were here. And along the way, discovered that they're much older than we thought they were. These are three to 500-year-old trees. And they form an, an ecosystem called woodland pasture that was actually started by uh, bison. And so the bluegrass was not heavily forested when, when settlers arrived here. They just basically moved in, kicked the bison out, and brought sheep and cattle and horses came later. So I just thought that I needed to explain this. And by this time, I thought, you know, I don't want to write a technical report on this. I want to write a book that anybody can read. The purpose of my books, I'm working on another one now, is that anybody who's interested in trees would understand the content of the book. 
I love the uh, historical context. I have the feeling that the book is really going to go into that deeper for anyone. And at least from the little bit I've read about it, Tom, it does sound great. Can you talk a little bit more about the relationship that Bison had with that region? Because uh, I think a lot of us just are thinking, oh, prairie bison by the thousands. I had no idea they were in Kentucky. Actually, the first bison I ever seen in North America was in uh, what is now the mall in Washington, D.C. <laughs> so they were Eastern. Um, it turns out that the bluegrass, when I talk about the bluegrass, I'm not talking about the entire state. I'm talking about this limestone region in the middle of the state where the horse racing is. It's very likely that the largest bison herds east of the Mississippi were here in the bluegrass. Um, and bison are very efficient grazers. They're not browsers, so they only eat grass. And they eat cane, which was very abundant. But, but the interesting thing about their behavior is they leave for long periods of time in search of water or salt or better vegetation. And so they could be in one place in the bluegrass and then disappear for decades at a time. And this would allow the young trees to get established. And, and part of the information for understanding this came from the fact that the same ecosystem occurs in a number of places in Europe where it's been much better studied. My friend Franz Vera has written a book about it. And it's the same cause. The, the Vicent, the European bison, is what started these woodland pastures in Europe. But in North America, they exist in only two places, here and the Nash Base, uh, which are basically the same, same rock, it's the same ecosystem. So the bison played an absolutely critically important role. But, of course, they're long gone, except for domesticated bison. But one result of what we have now, which is pretty much continuous grazing and mowing, is that these trees are not reproducing well. So that's what my consulting work is about. I think it's really fascinating. And I, I was reading a, a document about the pastures out in, in the Midwest and how when they brought back the bison, that plants that they thought were extinct were actually coming back. And they had no idea how or why. And it turns out that after studying it, that the hooves of the, of the bison were acting like little plows. Mm -hmm. And those little plows allowed the seed falling off of their fur as they would roll around on the ground, or when they were shedding their fur, would drop the seed mm -hmm. in places where they had already been. And discovery happens. You know, that's where they started yeah. discovering that. We can mimic a lot of these processes. I have a, a, a friend who has a large livestock farm just outside of Lexington, where he practices rotational intensive grazing, where the cattle are concentrated in one place and moved every day or every two days onto fresh pasture, and his pastures are stunningly diverse, uh, much more so than a, than a continually grazed pasture. So we're not going to bring back, you know, we can't bring back the bison in the sense that we can't have them wandering all over the state. <laughs> we do have a lot of uh, domesticated bison here. But we can bring back some, some practices, like rotational intensive grazing, that mimic what the bison yeah, we were just talking about the uh, Woody Harrelson documentary, Kiss the Ground. I do recommend it. It was my first exposure to that whole regenerative process for pastures. And the case that the movie makes also is uh, the phenomenal ability of those practices to not only restore ecosystems, 
but and maybe you can articulate this a little bit better, Tom, complete the cycle of proper carbon sequestration. Yeah, this is really important because um, uh, raising cattle has gotten a bad reputation with respect to carbon sequestration, water quality, all of these things. But there are different kinds of cattle grazing. You know, there's no question that intensive cattle grazing in Brazil has wiped out huge amounts of forests, still is, that it's an unsustainable practice. But most of the farmers around the bluegrass, and we, we are we are the largest cattle state east of Mississippi, most of our farmers are really practicing pretty low intensity grazing. Uh, they're not all doing rotational intensive, but they're all doing something that maintains the quality of the soil. That's fascinating and, and important because not only do we not want to have erosion and the loss of of nutrients within the soil, but we also want to make sure that the soil retains and actually builds up over time mm -hmm. rather than disappear. And I think that cattle can play an important part, as you're saying, by moving them and not keeping them grazing in one spot where you're constantly getting that compaction through the large numbers in one spot. Exactly. So, Tom, it sounds like you left academia and, and you're consulting. And what is your mission there? What, what do you find yourself talking to clients about? Well, I, I'm, I'm really trying to do, to do two things. One is to change the way people manage their land. And the other is to educate people. And I'll talk about those in sequence. So after the book came out, the book has been very, very popular. And more than popular, though, it's been influential. Um, so I constantly get calls from farm owners who say, can you come out and help us do a better job with this? Because they understand that they're losing their old trees. And so that's probably uh, two-thirds of my consulting work now is oriented around improved land management practices on farms. Interestingly, most of the farms that I work on, the farms that have the best intact woodland pastures are mostly in the ownership of the original families. So we have families that settled farms here in the 1780s, and they're still farming the same land. And so they are real stewards, much more so than sort of the, some of the latecomer. You know, some, some wealthy uh, horse farmers have moved in, and they're maybe a little bit less engaged with the land. Interesting. And you were saying, I think you're kind of going in this direction, that land management practices such as they are can often be counterproductive to oak reproduction. And what's going on there when, when oaks aren't able to reproduce? In, in the bluegrass, what it largely means is that the trees disappear altogether and you're left with pasture. In other parts of Kentucky, eastern and western Kentucky, oak regeneration is not happening because of, of management practices. I don't know that these numbers are still up to date, but until very recently, 90% of all logging operations in the state were done without the benefit of a professional forester, even though those services are free from the state. So basically these logging contractors go in and you know, make a deal and you know, they're, they're, not, they're not looking to the future. You know, as we know, forestry is really long-term management. You know, silviculture is designed for the next forest. And until we start to do that, we're going to continue to lose oak. This is obviously a significant problem in Kentucky because, uh, because of bourbon 
Yeah, which is basically, what is bourbon? It's white oak extract. <laughs> right. Um, and, uh, you know, for, for years, I tried to get the, the bourbon industry interested in the long-term sustainability of the white oak resource. And it, but it's only in about the last 10 years that they've finally went, oh, <laughs> this is a serious problem. So the University of Kentucky and a bunch of uh, bourbon distillers now and, and other companies, barrel makers especially, have uh, uh, developed the White Oak Initiative, which is designed to improve management practices of White Oak and to ensure future supply. And I think if you manage a forest for White Oak, I think the other oaks will all come in as well. So, you know, I think it's good practice. I like that concept very much. One of the things I think about is the seed store, you know, when that large tree drops its seed, if the ground is trampled or the seed is mangled or what have you, the idea of that seed coming up is a lot less. And you don't get that wonderful regeneration that you're talking about. Um, Because I know that in in some places here with projects that I worked with, with students, you know, they would cut down an area of woodland and leave it open and, all kinds of things started coming up that were not even anywhere near the forest at all, but it was seed store left from a hundred years ago and things started popping up and people were shocked. And I think that's very similar to what what's happening with what you're talking about is, you know, if there's not the seed store isn't there, then you can't regenerate. Yeah. Although oaks don't, create a long-term seed bank. Their seed bank uh, disappears fairly quickly. Uh, they get eaten. But but you're right. I mean, in principle, we need to have better management practices that do allow for natural regeneration. I know that there's a tree planting frenzy going on all over the world, uh, and, and that's very important. But many forests regenerate naturally, and certainly Appalachian forests regenerate naturally. I like to... We have a research forest in East Kentucky Robinson Forest that belongs to the university. And I like to take groups of people there and we have um, several clear cuts that were established, I think maybe 20, 30 years ago. And I walk people into them, into those clear cuts and they go, wow, what an amazing forest this is. You know, they don't cotton to the fact that it was clear cut 40 years, 30 years ago. So I, you know, I think, uh, I think there needs to be a lot of education going on if we're going to be successful at restoring forests. And just coming at it from, I guess, my perspective as an arborist, what are you seeing with your uh, bluegrass oaks as far as pathogens? And not to ask a leading question, but is it or is it not tied into some of the seismic climate weather patterns that we're experiencing. Yeah, days. let's come back to weather and climate in just a minute. What I will say, two things about the trees that I work with. First, they're, they're, they're spaced. They're not close to each other. Second, we don't have oak wilt in this part of the state. And so I, I do not see significant amount of disease or insect infestation in, in the trees that I work with, with one exception I'll come to in a second. The main problem that I see on a lot of farms is soil compaction and mower damage. 
And that's true in both urban tree, both urban trees and, and pasture trees. And, and by the way, I should say, uh, uh, I, I am not an arborist, but I do a fair amount of urban forestry. And I, if I were to point the camera right out the front window of my home, you would see a park with huge, massive trees. And these are remnants, these are pre-settlement remnant trees. We have uh, hundreds of old uh, woodland pasture trees that are in the city now. The city grew up around them and the trees are still there. I think you would be astonished at the size of, of I don't know of any city that has trees of the stature of these. Um, so those are remnants of the pasture. Now, with respect to climate change, this is something that I spend a lot of time explaining. I, I, I made a decision in 1982 that I would never give a public lecture without talking about climate change. And I've stuck to that, even though in 1982, people were going, huh? <laughs> and we haven't made the kind of progress that we need to make. But what has changed now is, first of all, a much greater frequency of strong storms. You might have seen in the news, we had two entire towns in Western Kentucky were wiped out last winter, uh, last fall. But the other thing is that we are, in a, we are in a pluvial, the opposite of a drought. We're in a long-term period of excess rainfall. Uh, you are, too by the way, uh, most of the Eastern United States is in pluvial. Um, and, you know, that's a term that's not familiar to most people, but you talk to any farmer or anybody who works on the land, and they say, oh, yeah, it rains all the time now. And it, it not only rains all the time now, but the, the storm events uh, deposit a lot more rain. And, you know, one result of that is our, our trees and our crops are really growing well. Not every aspect of uh, climate change is to be feared, but you know, we don't know what that means in the long term in terms of changes in forest or agriculture. Uh, you know, having this combination of higher carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and higher rainfall, you know, the plants are happy with that, at least for the short term. And I think, and you, I'm sure you can clarify it, but Lexington, with its venerable oaks, is probably have a lot of substructure in terms of soils that can handle heavy precipitation. Well, yes, because we're in karst, so the 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 uh, it's not so much the soil as the geology. The the water runs immediately down into the rock, and and that turns out to be very interesting. I was able to do a reconstruction. There's a graph in my book of of past climate and drought here from Denver Chronology work by. Uh, Lamont Doherty, showing droughts, well, showing precipitation going back to about the year 300. Um, and we know that prior to 1780, there were a lot of multi-decade droughts here. And, and karst topography is very susceptible to drought because the, the soil drains so quickly. But we haven't had one since then. Mm. We haven't had a, a, a long-term drought. We had a drought in 1984, 85. We haven't had any severe droughts in this part of the country for a long time. However, when we started looking at root distribution of the venerable trees, what we found is they're not rooted in the soil. They're rooted in the rock. They're rooted deeply in the rock, which means that they are very resistant to drought. Uh, and, and during the drought in 84-85, we saw trees dying in eastern Kentucky, we didn't see any trees dying in the bluegrass. We're all, we're all quite happily rooted in the rock. 
I wanted to mention, you know, we're not just talking about oaks in the, among the venerable trees. There are five species. Three of them are oaks, chinkapin, burr, and shumart oak. Uh, but there's a, there's a hickory, cane nut, which some people call a shellbark hickory, but that's wrong. The original name was cane nut. I'm trying to restore that name. Can you tell us the Latin name of that? Do you, can you give us the Latin name of that? Yeah, Caria Liciniosa. Okay, thank you. Native Americans used the name Palca hickora for all the hickories. I don't know exactly what they called king nut, but the early settlers that came here called it king nut because the, the, the fruits are the size of a, of a baseball. Oh, my. And they're enormously nutritious, so that they were very prized for food and for pigs and for all kinds of reasons, so they called it king nut. But the, the last of these species is blue ash. Blue ash is a very odd tree. It's not closely related to other ashes. It looks very different. Most people wouldn't recognize it as an ash. It has square twigs. It's fractions quadrangulata. But it's surviving the emerald ash borer. Almost all of our white ash and green ash are already gone. The blue ash are surviving except for blue ash that have been damaged by mowing or soil compaction. So we've lost some blue ash. But for the most part, they are resistant to the emerald ash borer. Which is good news. <laughs> this is interesting because in, uh, in our area, we lost the blue ash. Could be so the difference between a subspecies. You never know. Well, I'm, I'm not saying that blue ash are completely immune. They, they are right. not. Um, but they are more resistant. There's a very closely related insect called the two-lined chestnut borer. That, and it attacks stressed oak trees. It completely ignores trees that are not oaks. And it completely ignores oaks that are not stressed. So we would go out in the forest in eastern Kentucky and in Daniel Moon National Forest and uh, stress the trees by partially girdling them. And they would be attacked by this insect immediately. And that's the role of these buprested beetles, these metallic woodboring beetles, in other places in the world. In China, they don't attack healthy ash trees. And, and basically, they're, it's olfaction. They're smelling the, the susceptible trees. We, we had a major project. I had two PhD students and technicians, and we were doing a major project in uh, Daniel Boone National Forest where we were stressing oaks and doing various things. And there was a conference. The Daniel Boone National Forest staff had a conference, and, and my lab came, and some people came from Robinson Forest. And one of the managers said, uh, what's the major cause of oak mortality in, in the Daniel Boone? <laughs> my dear friend, Junior Marshall, who was the foreman of Robinson Forest, pointed his thumb at me and said, I think he is. Because <laughs> <laughs> you were doing so many experiments there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, a really important thing about what I do, what, what tree physiologists and tree biochemists do, you know, it, it's tempting to work with greenhouse-grown seedlings. You know, that's, I did my PhD with greenhouse-grown seedlings. But... To understand the difference between trees and everything else, you really need to understand, you really need to study the big ones. And I've done that ever since. And, and that's where having agreements with land managers, whether it's the Daniel Boone National Forest or a you know, property owner in Woodford County, that allow you to do things to manipulate the trees and see how they behave, how they respond. It was uh, really beneficial for us to be able to do that in Eastern Kentucky. That's really fascinating. In your work, how do you determine what type of experiments you're going to do, where you're going to do them? And 
do students ever make the call as to what they would like to experiment on and maybe something that you jump on because it feels like it's the right thing to look at? No, I, I'm very much in favor of student-led projects. That, that project on the two-on chestnut borer was actually brought to me by a doctoral student in entomology. I have long had an interest, going back to my doctoral dissertation, in how do you know when a tree is under stress? Uh, you usually can't tell by looking at them unless they're wilted, and that's sort of hat, that's beyond stress. You know, so can you take their blood pressure? Can you take the, their cholesterol? You know, can you do the kinds of things that medicine does to determine that? And the answer is yes, but not those things. So it turned out that this insect, the intestinal for was the perfect surrogate for understanding whether a tree is under stress because they only attack stressed trees. So I'm, I've always been driven by, I guess, two things. One is curiosity. And the second is being open to what my students and colleagues want. The work I do now is very different, though. I, I am managing more than I am experimenting. Although one of the things that we have done, realizing that these trees are not regenerating well, we have built exclosures. I got a bunch of volunteers to build uh, one-acre exclosures in woodland pastures and a number of farms. And we're looking at those to see if they come up in the desirable trees. So I'm still an experimentalist just for different purposes. Do you um, have a lot of problem with deer? Deer are a tremendous problem with tree regeneration anywhere in the eastern U.S. now. You know, the interesting thing is when I first came to Kentucky, there were almost no deer. We had a lot of semi-wild dogs at the time. When the state got some control over that, deer came back in very large numbers, not like they are in New York. 500 deer crossing the highway, as you do in New York. But um, the other thing that has come back, uh, and in your area as well, is, uh, is coyotes are back in big numbers. And that's a good thing. And they're coyote wolf hybrids, so they're larger than Western coyotes, which means they could take down small deer. And that's a positive thing. But with respect to tree planting, we, we have to use tree shelters. And, and even there, they're pretty high risks. You've painted actually a pretty optimistic picture for me or, and probably for Eva as well in terms of overall oak health. And, you know, I don't have that ready data available to me in terms of what Metro Lexington and the bluegrass part of the state is having in terms of weather extremes. And I'm thinking more now with heat versus what we have here in the Delaware Valley. Because our oak population it is struggling. And almost every week, University of Maryland is sending out these alerts for ambrosia beetle. Um, but we've also had a really rough time with bacterial leaf scorch. So, you know, between those two pests, and no, we don't have sudden oak death, but last I've heard it is more in the middle part of Pennsylvania. You mean oak will? Sorry, oak wilt. Yeah. Oak wilt, yes. Yeah. Well, so with this, we have we have bacterial leaf scorch, but it's only in pin oak. Pin oak and okay. what, what happened is Lexington, like a lot of cities, planted ridiculous numbers of pin oaks to replace the elms. And and pin oak is a terrible city tree. It's very short-lived. You know, even in the wild, there's a big pin oak forest right outside of Red River Gorge, uh, an oak flat. You know, it's a bottomland tree. 
And even there, they, they're gone in a hundred years. So then you plant them in the city where they have water and fertilizer and they grow like mad, they, you know, they check out. But it, it is bacterial leaf scorching. So in some respects, we're talking about differences, not so much in climate and weather as species. Yeah. yeah so yeah. we have the, in, the, in the city of Philadelphia, we, I was working on the Xylella fastidiosa leaf scorch collection in the city with my students around the university. And we found it in so many of the red uh, oak subspecies. It was crazy. Even on shingle oak, you would find it. Uh, but they were so stressed out. And their locations that they were in, they were in three by three foot pits, you know, not ideal for growing an oak. And that stress just within five years, the tree's gone. Yeah, I, th I think that the situation with, with uh, bacterial leaf scorches that it will infect healthy trees, but it only really takes hold when the trees are stressed. Yep. Um, and that's the city. So that's the city's stressed, it, a stressful so, place to be. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I, I think some of this is a matter of species. I, I, I think, you know, one, one of the things that I am encouraging uh, with a number of my clients who are interested in planting trees is we're mixing in a few species that are more southerly than what we have been planting, which is not to say that those will all do great, but we need to find out. Uh, when I came to Kentucky, people were planting Southern Magnolia, beautiful tree with the glossy green leaves. And pretty right. much every winter, unless they were right up next to a building, they'd, they'd freeze and turn brown and they would recover the following year. Now they never turn brown. They're just, they're, they're the hardiest, yeah. you know, and, the extent to which we need to move trees around is not really, we don't really know yet, but we certainly do need to be moving. You know, in Maryland Forestry Service is growing a longleaf pine now, which I think is smart. I think more and more we need to be mixing up. And, you know, cities are the place to do these experiments because nobody's going to complain about a non-native tree. <laughs> Absolutely. We had a, a taxodium growing in the city of Philadelphia, and it is a it's a boon for them because they love it in the city. Oh yeah, and, yeah. And you know, it's a tree that's a good replacement for any of those that are diseased and can't tolerate the stress. That one there does really well. Yeah, I'm very fond of I'm very fond of old cypress because it's native here down along rivers and sometimes on the uplands. But yeah, it's a great tree. Mm -hmm. um, a tree that we are starting to lose, and this is very sad, is American sycamore. Oh, my. There's a disease uh, that kills leaves in the early spring. Anthracnose. Um, anthracnose, that's it. Thank you. Yep. And uh, then they just leaf out again. And that's been the history. So in, in the bluegrass, sycamore is an upland tree as well as a bottomland tree. Mm. Well, so then I started noticing in one neighborhood just west of here that because it's so wet all the time, the anthracnose was recurring. As you know, it used to it used to be it would kill the leaves in the spring and maybe a few twigs and buds, and then it would go away and the tree would be fine. Now we have sycamores that are dying because they get reinfected three or four times. We see that with our, our sycamores, but are also the our London plane trees. Both of them are really taking a hit with that. I think that the information that you've given us and our listeners has been invaluable because you're right on the front lines of seeing 
things up close and in person. And that's the best way to learn, I, I feel. And we always ask the question. I know people say, why do you always ask that question? But we have to ask it because we know that there is a spirit tree that speaks to you. And so what is your favorite tree that speaks to you or group of trees? You know, uh, we had a discussion about this on Twitter just a couple of weeks ago. Somebody listed their favorite trees. And so several people said, Tom, what's your favorite tree? And I said, well, I, I can narrow it down to about 26,400. Right. <laughs> I, that's exactly no, right. Not, <laughs> I, I, I am not just an eastern forester. I'm also a tropical forester. I spent five years in Southeast Asia. And uh, so many of my favorite trees are, are, uh, are tropical. Uh, so, yeah. So, I, I, Tom, can you tell... I was just going to ask Tom about the book that you're working on now. And uh, feel free to give a shout out. Uh, I found you on Twitter and you're a gentleman, I guess a lot of, isn't that a thing? A Kentucky gentleman, but your, your posts are always very upright and mature. <laughs> I, I attempt to be kind in all things. Uh, you know, I'm a, it comes through loud and clear. Uh, well, yeah. actually I teach theology, so that's one of my other jobs. <laughs> oh, so there you have it. So yeah, I, I try in all things to be kind to other people. But, uh, and I think, you know, I quit Facebook and Instagram. Um, I have about 7,000 followers on Twitter. I try to post three or four times a week and I try to post something that is informative. I'm gonna post all next week, I'm gonna be posting about food from trees. A lot of this is associated with the work I'm doing for my second book. So very, very often I'm working on something for the second book and uh, I go, oh, my Twitter audience would like to know that. So my second book is called Our Trees. I changed, it's different than the title that's on my website. Um, it is the entire history of our relationship with trees and why we need them and why we need to be among them. And so it starts way back with people like Lucy, you know, Australopithecus afarensis. You know, our ancestors lived in trees. And Lucy and her kin were the first of our kind to come out of the trees and walk around on land, but they still slept in trees. They still ate trees, all this stuff. So, and then it, it comes all the way up to today when I talk about people using trees. And one of the things I've been doing the last month or so is doing a lot of research on the origins of food from trees. And yesterday... I had finished a couple of weeks, actually, of studying coffee and chocolate. So I was reading about coffee, and I came up with this astonishing realization. I was looking at two maps. One is a map of the original range of coffee, which we know from genetics, from modern genetics. The original range of coffee. And I said, this map looks familiar. And I looked at a map at the origins of humans. It's the same place. Wow, that's fascinating. Humans and coffee originated in the African Rift Valley, both. And wow, I love it. You know, um, Lucy and her kin weren't making coffee, but they could very well have been eating the leaves and the berries of coffee. People still do that. And we know that in the 1700s, the, uh, the coffee house 
the popularity of coffee houses is thought to be a major contributing factor to the Enlightenment because A, people weren't drinking as much alcohol, and B, they were awake. <laughs> and so that got me to thinking, well, what about our ancestors? Were they eating coffee in Ethiopia and staying awake? So there's a discussion. With that. That's kind of a side note. That's great. Yeah, it's really fun. So I'm having a great time with this, uh, this book. I expect to finish it by the end of this year. I, I need to do a little bit of traveling. I need to go to Mozambique for a story I won't go into now, but... Um, I had my, my tickets, my, my visas, and my vaccinations was ready to go to the to Mozambique when the pandemic started. <laughs> so you're two years behind. <laughs> I'm two years. I, I haven't been out of town. I haven't been out of town since then. <laughs> I hope to go soon. I, I said early on that I actually do two things. One of them was uh, doing this conservation work in Blueberries. But I am very education-oriented, and especially now that I'm not a university to informal education. Uh, this started when I was a professor at, at UK. I started doing curriculum development. I developed the uh, natural resources and environmental science curriculum at the University of Kentucky, which is now the biggest major in the College of Agriculture. And then I went to Borneo in Indonesia and did the same thing. Worked in Indonesia for a while, then I went to Malaysia and I did the same thing. So I've been interested in teaching for a long time. And when I wrote the first book, I started hosting what I call field courses, just taking groups of people out in woodland pastures or in forests and just teaching. And I did, the, the year before the pandemic, I did 100 public events of various kinds. I haven't done any since. I've done a few online, but I'm, I'm firing back up again. And what I find is that people have an endless passion and interest in, for trees. All of my uh, activities sell out. Um, the interesting thing is, though, I don't teach tree ID. I teach tree biology. And that's way more interesting <laughs> to me and to, and to my audience. You know, so we will, for example, go out in the woods and I'll have people take a trowel and dig up some roots. And we talk about mycorrhizae and all the other critters that are in the soil. And by the time they get done with those, they pretty much have a good understanding of sort of modern tree biology in a way that I don't think they can get anywhere else. Yeah. The other thing I do now that is really interesting, I started doing this. I, I, I teach a fair number of, of courses for churches. And um, I, I always start those with either a prayer or a period of walking silently. And I realized what I was doing was forest bathing and so I do that with all my groups now, not saying prayers. I, these are secular classes. But I say, we're going to take the first 10 or 15 minutes, and we're just going to walk through the woods in silence. And you can do whatever you want. You can think about your taxes, or you can try and focus on the forest and, and the trees. And what I'm finding, the feedback that I'm getting from people, is that it made them much more attentive than they would have been. That's a technique I encourage anybody teaching in the field to do is to use sort of the principles of forest bathing. Yeah. Well, I encourage you to pursue the eating trees piece. I know Eva and I have dabbled in that. And if you move quickly enough and get a book out on eating trees, then you can be the founder of the Tregan movement, <laughs> where you only eat trees. I'm actually going to post on... You can use that. I, thank you. I'll, I will. I'm actually going to post on... I, 
I've been sampling all these different things from trees and not just randomly from trees, but things that are direct traded so that the farmers are getting a fair shake. I'm going to take a picture. I have probably 30 species in my kitchen right now of fruits from trees. I'm going to take a picture of all of them and say, this is all tree. And the other thing that I've done, I have a collection in my closet of sap. This is frankincense, which, you know, I always say when the three wise men arrived bearing frankincense, myrrh, and gold, the guy bearing the gold was a piker. He was a cheapskate because the really expensive stuff was the frankincense and myrrh. And now it turns... Yeah, that's, that's very true. Yeah. Very yeah. True. It turns out that these things have really important medicinal qualities. Uh, there, there's a reason that incense is made of this stuff, not because it smells good. I have a, a, a very good friend, you might want to talk to her, uh, Cassandra Quave, Q-U-A-V-E, is an ethnobotany professor at uh, Emory. She calls herself the plant hunter, and she's exploring plants all over the world, not just trees, but many of them are trees, for medicinal properties, uh, especially interviewing indigenous people about what they use for what and then testing them out. Uh, she's absolutely fascinating. Great conversationalist. You might talk to her, or at least follow her on Twitter. Well, we are so delighted that you could be with us today and My talk pleasure. about your work and and the place of in Kentucky that is so special for these mm -hmm. oaks. I, I think it's fascinating. Yeah, and uplifting and uh, undeniably, Tom, the, the, the spiritual dimension that you bring into everything is uh, not being missed. Well, I enjoyed talking with well, you. We wish you the best and continued success on your journey. Thank you. I, I, I may be passing through Philadelphia before too long. Well, if you're up our way, please give us a call. Please reach out. The, yeah. You know, Frank Linnea. Franklin Alatamaha. I will you know. take you to Bartram's Gardens and show you. I, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to do. You know, I I did uh, I did take a boat up the uh, the Altamaha River a few years ago, and and I, I wrote an essay about this. And I said, you know, I think I did what every botanist does going up the Altamaha. Going, I'm going to find one. I'm going to find one. <laughs> Well, you're most welcome. I'll take you where I, I have friends there. I just took my students this past week to Bartram's Gardens. That's great. You know, one of the, speaking of climate change, one of the really extraordinary things about Franklinian is the farther north yes. you plant it, the better it grows. You know, it, it, it struggle. It, botanical gardens in Georgia struggle to grow Franklinian. There's beautiful Franklinia in a cemetery in Louisville, and then you guys have, you know, the epicenter of Franklinia and where it grows really well. I think that we have underappreciated the extent to which forests are still recovering from the last glaciation. Uh, so now what we've done is we've layered human-caused climate change on top of the natural migration trees. It's, it's fun stuff. We could talk all day. <laughs> Very much. It's a great time yeah. to be a, a, a forest scientist because we understand so much now. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I am absolutely buried in journal articles that I have to keep up with reading because for writing my books, it's just a really exciting time to be in this field. Well, when you're up here, just give us a call. Okay. We'll look All right, I'll do that. Seeing you. Take Enjoy care the rest call. of spring. Yeah, you too. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. Take care.
Bye-bye. The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromedan Recordings in Hollywood, California. Thank you.